Well, welcome to The Professor and the Hack. This is uh, episode 15. Thank you for, if you've gone the distance with us, and if you're just joining us, thank you for that as well. I am the Hack. I'm Hugh Remington. The Professor, Peter Van Onselen, has gone, well, he's gone missing, really. I I notice that the uh, Prime Minister can win the Prime Ministership, can then win an election. He gets rewarded with one week in uh, Fiji. Peter Van Onselen manages to call the outcome of the election wrong, predicts it wrong in advance, and he's had two weeks' holidays. Make of that what you will. But I'm very happy to have another stand-in professor for us, Catherine Lumby, Professor of Media at Macquarie University. Welcome. Thanks, Hugh. Great to have you with us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And we can talk about sort of There's a lot of things that are going on, actually. Uh, We're about to get now, the real politics is coming back in, the parliament's about to resume, and we've got, you know, big speeches from the prime minister mapping out things that he wants to do. But it's really interesting, since the election, we've had three things, I would say, that have really dominated particularly the social media space, but the headlines as well. And all of them are sort of political. They're about rights, really, and responsibilities. I'm thinking about Mm. Israel Folau. I'm thinking about the Setka matter uh, in, at the CFMEU and also the, of course, let's not forget the uh, the raids on the ABC and on the um, News Corp journalist Annika Smethurst. All of those go down to some of those issues about where rights exist in our current world. And the Israel Folau one is interesting because, uh, well, what's your take on it? Gee, I think it's complex. Um, I don't think it's totally simple because I think that we do need to respect religious freedom. Uh, At the same time, when we're thinking about the kind of potential impact of speech on, you know, young queer people, um, I, you know, we know that they've got five times the suicide rate of the same kind of cohort who are straight as teenagers. So, You know, I mean, I'm struggling with this one. Um, I mean, I guess you can take a legalistic view, right, and you can say, well, you know, this is a a case that's going before the courts about employment law essentially. Like can can you sign a contract which basically can limit your right to speech? Um, and lots of people do that. They do. And all kinds of lawyers and all kinds of people yeah. in every corporation now, you sign these contract, employment contracts, and then there will be something like, you know, you're not allowed to say anything unless it's squared off by, you know, the board and whatever it is yeah. up, up the chain. That's right. And, I mean, you know, like this is true in journalism, you know that. It's um, if you're a high-profile journalist, you've got to be, you know, very careful about what you do on social media. Um, as a university professor, um I can't bring my university into disrepute. So so then what happens if you've got a particular view on it could be a religious matter or a political matter or some other matter that's, that's controversial? Are you allowed to... Do, do, do you retain any rights at all as a professor at a university? Um, I mean, it's as long as you're speaking on the basis of your research and what you're saying is evidence-based, it's OK. But if I went out there and started... Um, well, let's say denying that climate change was happening, um, the university would be deeply unhappy about that. It's a kind of controversial position to take. Um, And there have been a lot of cases actually where um, academics and, you know, have been, had their contracts terminated for saying things that that don't kind of gel well with what the science says, for instance. Now, that's interesting to people. So if you are a 
in one of the various areas that fall under into climate science, yep. and you're a scientist, and you say, look, my research indicates that maybe the world isn't warming as much as we thought or that the ice patterns are not what has generally been accepted. You can say that if you can point to your research. If you can point to evidence and your own research or other people's research, yes. But if you're a professor in some other area, some other field altogether, and you personally believe that it's all a bunch of hogwash yeah. uh, and you then pronounce that from, uh, from the town square, then you can be kicked out of the university. Well, I mean, in some cases, yes. Um, you know, if you were really um, pressing that point and getting a lot of attention for it um, and your university, say, like UNSW's got a, a world-leading kind of climate science centre, um, UNSW would not be happy about an academic um, kind of dissing what what the research says. Um, And and also it's frowned upon to talk outside your area of expertise. So, yeah, there is a a limit on your speech implicitly. Going back to the Israel Folau case, um, Mm. I find it a fascinating case because Mm. it is, you know, I, I, I think... I think, in fact, there are far too many controls now being written into employment contracts about your free speech, which actually has nothing to do with um, your company. Yeah. Uh, you know, so long as you say, look, I'm not speaking on behalf of the company. And, and obviously, it's, if you hold a homophobic position and you're a CEO of a company or a heavily misog- misogynistic position or a racist position, you can't expect to stay in that company because you can't represent that company. But if you're a mere employee... And let's face it, that Israel Folau in this case is not the captain of the Wallabies. Uh, He doesn't represent the Wallabies in a broader sense. He simply plays for the Wallabies. Can he not have, uh, broadly speaking, whatever views he wants to have? Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, he is probably the highest profile rugby player and there's no question there'd be a lot of young um, guys who look up to him and potentially young women. And... um, uh, and I think that where the difficulty lies here is that he's not advocating violence against gay and lesbian people. In which case there'd be no argument. He'd have to go <clears throat> and there are charges. Sure. That's right. But um, what he's saying is this is my reading of the Bible. So one position you could take, and I'm a bit torn on this, is to say, well, he's entitled to read the Bible his Bible the way he wants to and to say this is my interpretation of scripture. Uh, but there'd be plenty of Christians who say, well, that's a very cut and paste approach to the Bible. It's a very literal kind of interpretation. So one, one way of looking at it is the answer to um, offensive speech is more speech. So, I mean, I, I would have liked to have seen some, some and maybe they have and I haven't seen it, some more Christians coming out and saying, well, actually not all Christians are homophobic and not all Christians believe that gays go to hell or even believe in hell for that matter. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting because there's nothing, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. There's, there's nothing no. in any of the, you know, the, the Gospels, the four, the, four, the four books, the Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, well, Jesus, speaking with his own mouth, never yes. bothered to mention homosexuality. So uh, for a Christian, you have to look elsewhere in the Bible and, the, and most of it comes from the old Hebrew uh, texts exactly. of the Old Testament in which there's all kinds of other stuff like death for blaspheming, the right to own slaves, other yeah. stuff which is simply intolerable yeah. today, which you don't see serious Christians wandering around the place saying, you know, slavery yeah. should be sanctioned by, you know, it, it is God's law 
or, you know, we must kill people who blaspheme. Um, Or idolaters must be put to the sword. Yeah, or or don't wear a coat made of two different threads. Yes. (laughs) I think you can get stoned for that one. So um, absolutely. And I so so you've got a kind of theological debate going on on one side and I think it would have been interesting to see more of that. But on the other hand, I was talking to Ed Santow, the Human Rights Commissioner, and, uh, the other day and I was asking him about the flower thing. And he's, he's a really interesting guy because he actually has carriage of, of questions around religious freedom as well as carriage of stuff around LGBTI stuff. And he said to me, look, Catherine, Falau can say this stuff but he has to live with the consequences of his speech. And he said to me, do you know how many parents of young queer kids I speak to who say my biggest challenge is stopping my teenage son killing himself? Mm. So I think we've got to really, you know, speech has consequences and that's a pretty serious consequence. Look, I think that is, that is true. You're looking at, at rival levels of harm. Um, you know, the Peter Fitzsimons of the world, Drew Mitchell, the, the, the former wallaby who had a good crack at Israel mm. Folau and it, they're not going to feel themselves personally threatened by what Folau is no. saying. But it does strike me that if you're a young conservative, you know, Christian or from a conservative Christian background, sure. if you're from a Polynesian background, yeah. um, if, you're, if you're from a combination of those things, a young conservative Polynesian Christian background, uh, and you're hearing the stuff about going to hell and you are concerned about your own sexuality, the kinds of things that he's preaching is going to be difficult for them. It, it absolutely will. And I think we've got to acknowledge that, you know, young queer kids still in many contexts struggle coming out and um, there are high rates of suicide and depression. So I guess on balance I'd have to say I think Rugby Australia's done the right thing. Mm. Uh, there's this GoFundMe campaign and he's oh, yeah. been pilloried for that, although, you know, he's getting up towards a million dollars of people who've, who've, who've given money. So he's plainly, he's plainly um, striking a chord with some people there. People have sort of said he's not in a position, he should not have a GoFundMe page because he's worth millions of dollars. What's your, what's your take on that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, GoFundMe should be there for people who are genuinely needy. Um, he's decided to take this action and... Um, I don't think it makes him look good at all. Now, in a wider cultural and political sense, um, we've already heard from the Prime Minister, we heard from him before the election, and I think he said it again uh, afterwards about uh, the rights of uh, protection, religious freedom essentially is going to be one of the themes that he intends to take forward in the Morrison government. Um, and the Falau thing has become part of its significance as it becomes uh, essentially the, you know, the first great token of this new battle. Um, how do you see it working in the Australian uh, sphere at the moment, something like the Falau case? Is it something which Scott Morrison can use to, um, uh, you know, as a signal case, uh, a test case, if you like, to go out and do what he plainly intends to do, and that is to reassure people of conservative religious belief, Christian or otherwise, that he's on their side and he's going to protect their freedoms. Yeah, well, this is where it gets very ideological and there's a lot of virtue signalling on both sides, I think. Um, look, really, I think that while I'm saying I think, you know, freedom of religion is very important, uh, what this debate really boils down to is um, a sort of 
a set of claims by people on the right of the Liberal Party, generally speaking, that their their speech is somehow being oppressed. And I think that that's code for, well, society's changing, um, you know, there's now a, a, there's same-sex marriage equality, um, you know, <laughs> women are getting a bit up, uppity, I think, you know, they're, they're increasingly um, demonstrating power. And I do think, uh, actually, this may be unfair, but I, I reckon there are some, you know, guys on the conservative side of politics who are deeply uncomfortable with where society's going. And I think the religious freedom thing is a is a kind of, um, it, it's, it's a sort of screen to project that stuff onto. Because most religions, by and large, compared with the way where society is, is going now, most religions tend to, uh, I believe the word is privilege, the male position. Yes. Uh, more they, than the female position. And the, and the hetero position, if you want to put that as well. Yeah, that's So, therefore, right. you can say, look, I, I'm, I'm not fighting this for my own purposes, I'm fighting because of religious freedom. Yeah. I, you know. I, I think it's a bit of a screen for that. Um, not, but I, having said that, I do think that it's important to defend the right to free speech when it comes to religion. In fact, I'd like to see a Bill of Rights you know, I think if Australia had a, had a Bill of Rights, then we could look broadly at all the protections, whereas if you look at the way the law works at the moment, it's very patchy. So certain kinds of speech, uh, like 18C, there was a huge debate about that. Well, there are all kinds of things that are prohibited under 18C um, when it comes to racial vilification. Uh, however, we don't have other kinds of sections that apply to other kinds of speech. And I just think the answer is we need a comprehensive Bill of Rights or something written into the Constitution. Catherine, I'm so touched by that because it's such a good idea. We can't agree at the moment as to whether a refugee should be able to see a doctor. Um, how do you think we're going to go on actually getting a Bill of Rights through Parliament? <laughs> OK, call me naive. Hey, look, they pay me to be a professor, right, so I just come up with, you know, best-case scenarios all the time and I don't, I'm not held... To account for it. <laughs> it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful position. Um, speaking of holding people to account, um, John Setka, uh, the member, mm. well, the, the Victorian boss of the CFMEU, we've got a, another awkward position that's on the other side of politics. Um, I'll tell you what, we'll talk about that in just a moment. We'll take a quick break. Channel 10 is bringing the fun to 6 o'clock weeknights. It's the new show where you've got to think fast or you won't last. Celebrity Name Game. It's the most fun you can have at 6 o'clock weeknights on Channel 10. So welcome back to uh, The Professor and the Hack. I interrupted myself. This is the, the qualities I have for interrupting <laughs> guests. I can even interrupt myself. We're, we're just going to start talking about John Setka. So um, what do you make of this? Because this is plainly a difficulty for the Labor Party. Anthony Albanese has now determined that sure. John Setka uh, must be expelled from the ALP. He'll doubtless get his wish. However, this is the uh, Victorian boss of the CFMEU. He's digging in, in that union in Victoria, it goes to issues of um, basically his treatment of women, uh, the claims that have now been essentially refuted pretty effectively that he mm. uh, denigrated Rosie Batty, the domestic violence campaigner, but that he is in court uh, pleading guilty to charges of harassing Pretty a woman. horrendous stuff, the allegations, and one imagines that there's likely to be evidence um, because it involved texts. 
Um, you know, I just, it, it makes me think that Norm, Norm Gallagher's risen from the grave, actually. It's that very combative, militant, uh, very old school unionism and, and, and his personality is like that. I mean, I had a grandfather who was a dock worker in Newcastle and, you know, um, card-carrying member of the Communist Party and, you know, leading light in the painter and dockers union and I'm familiar with that kind of masculinity. And, um, and of course, it's a huge win for the Morrison government that this guy's popped his head up and that he's... Um, he really is reinventing, not reinventing, I mean he is representing that old style of trade unionism and that's how the Liberal Party continues to want to portray unions. Um, so, I mean, of course, um, Shorten can expel him um, or he can be expelled from the ALP, but he can't be, um, the, the ACTU can't do anything about him. And, and, of course, and of course, the, the key thing is, is that there have been millions of dollars given by the CFMEU to the to the Labor Party. Sure. So on one hand, you can expel Setka from the party, but then there comes a decision: is Setka still part of the operating decision-making machinery of the CFMEU? Yeah. And he can do either one of two things: either cut the money off to the ALP, uh, or alternatively, in some ways, almost as damaging, continue to give the money to the ALP. Yeah. Because then right. Albo yeah. sits there and goes, "Well, you've you know you've expelled him, but you're still quite happy to take his money." Yeah, and that that will that would be seen as frank hypocrisy. Um, and what's what's going to interest me when I think about this is the Liberal Party bangs on about unions are all corrupt and and you know sectors sectors become a kind of poster child for that claim, you know. And then but then you look at the Royal Commission into banking. You want to talk about you know systemic malpractice corruption. and mm. systemic corruption. So it, it's interesting this sort of turns into class warfare um, on both sides of politics. It does seem to, uh, we seem to go more and more to class warfare, don't we? Yeah, and that kind of goes back to the um, election campaign. I mean, you know, which, well, there are many ways of analysing that, but, uh, you know, Shorten and Labor came out with what was... Um, a really big, bold agenda, but it certainly uh, drove a kind of a, a wedge between the Liberal and the Labor parties that used to be kind of in lockstep on so many things. So I think, I wonder if this is a, a time uh, in politics where we're going to see the re-emergence of those divisions. One of the interesting things for um, Albanese is that he is trying to soften all that edge. He now uh, has said that people earning $200,000 a year are not the, quote, top end of town. So he's, uh, the, you know, mm -hmm. to, to that effect, they're not rich if you're making $200,000 a year. That'll be a surprise to, you know, to some people. But in some ways, you look at the Labor Party and the decisions that are ahead for it, and what is it going to offer? Uh, essentially, if it doesn't offer class warfare, basically what they offered at the last election, which is we'll tax those at the top more than the other mob will, but we will take that money and we will flood it down into things like better cancer mm -hmm. access, dental care on Medicare, mm -hmm. uh, all these sorts of things that people, you know, a review, whatever that's worth for new start levels, but raising the expectations that people on the dole are going to get more money, yeah. all these sorts of things. So, um, you know, that didn't sell in the end. It didn't fly. But if you take that away, what's the Labor Party got? 
and they're just waiting around for the coalition to make dreadful mistakes and become completely poisonous to the electorate. What else? What, where else can they take it? Yeah, it's interesting. Walid Ali, um, not surprisingly, made it. You know, is one of the people who's made, a, I think, a very good analysis of the election. And, and in the New York Times, he wrote uh, an opinion piece in which he argued. He said, "Well." You know, the people are, are trying to draw analogies with things like Brexit or Trump, you know, because all the polls were wrong and so on. But he said, no, it's not a reflection of some um, kind of sharp ideological divide in reality, like the parties aren't that far apart. What it's about is Australia's naturally cautious approach. And, and you know, we are heading into times with big global challenges, right? So climate change is the obvious one. But also, um, you know, in many instances, like if you look, say, at Analyze America's economy, I think there are signs that neoliberalism is failing and that people um, are beginning to question all the sorts of, um, I guess, economic and political frameworks that probably drove the last 50 years of how, when we, when we, when you look at how comfortable people are with the world. So I think it's, but, but Ali, you know, argues, well, the thing is Australians just, um, they say they care about climate change, they, they, they say they care about, um, you know, equity when it comes to wealth distribution, but in reality it, they're easily frightened, you know, and, and um, you know, I think someone called Scott Morrison the member for Bunnings and... Um, you know, he's, he is like the daggy dad at the sausage sizzle, sizzle kind of guy you go, well, if I give him $20 in an envelope, he'll probably put it in the bank and invest it for me and I'll come back and I'll get $30 in, mm. you know, five years' time. Well, a lot of people go to Bunnings. Yeah, and, and if I, um, you know, if I... So, you know, that's what Bunnings kind of signifies. It's, it's a secure, reliable you're doing something decent on the weekend. It's that kind of environment. Whereas people, I think a lot of people think if I gave Bill Shorten that money, that 20 bucks in an envelope, he'd probably spend it. I saw, uh, it's, we've had this little cold snap across much of the country and I saw someone, you know, it's a good line, saying it was so cold that uh, he spotted uh, Bill Shorten with his hands in his own pockets. Um, <laughs> and uh, not a bad line. It's a good line. Um, and you could apply it, you could, you could take out Bill Shorten and put any other name in there that you want, of according course. to the person that you most uh, dislike. Um, while I've got you, as a professor of media, the other thing which has happened since the election, notably since the election, have been these uh, raids that were held against the ABC and against Annika Smithhurst. Yeah. Um, now, it, it was widely expected. In fact, uh, there had been um, advice, so I'm told, from the federal police that they were intending more raids, uh, including, I was told, one on the News Corp headquarters in mm. Sydney and Holt Street. They never happened, oddly enough. Mm. So... Um, uh, Plainly, there seems to have been a, a, a second thought about how keen they are to do more of these high-profile raids. What do you think is going on with those raids on journalists? Well, I think they're outrageous um, and uh, I think that they're... Um, I think it's huge government overreach, um, you know, which is filtering, filtering through to the federal police actions. I, th I think... Um, Look, it's a, it's, a, it's a pillar of democracy that journalists can protect their sources. 
I mean, the, it's not called the fourth estate for nothing. It's a pillar of democracy, but it's not well protected in law. No, it's not, Hugh. And, that, and I think this is why this is a slippery slope. To use a cliche, it's, I think it's a very dangerous um, erosion of democratic rights because it's not just about um, eroding journalists' rights. It's, it's about... All, it should concern all Australians because the fourth estate, good journalism, is there to inform us in a healthy democracy. Um, and I think, you know, we, we, we don't live in a, in a dictatorship. We, don't, we, we allegedly live in a liberal democracy and in that case there should be transparency when it comes to um, government policy and, and There's actions. a lot that's secret that shouldn't be secret. Oh, totally. The so-called on-water matters you know, the, the whole Nauru and Manus thing, I think it's outrageous. And I think um, the problem is that, uh, you know, the tide uh, goes out little by little and you kind of forget where the shoreline was. Uh, but I, I think we're in a very unhealthy phase with democracy and, um, and you know, we were talking about rights before. Well, I mean, what about just um, the right to know in a democracy? We also have a situation where we've got court cases underway where whistleblowers are facing enormous length, long, long periods in jail yes. for doing things. People always say, you know, that the counter-argument is, oh, you know, things have to be secret, lives are at stake. But in none of these cases, for example, the tax whistleblower Richard Boyle who's yes. in court in Adelaide or the um, Witness K. Bernard Caleri case, which was about the revelation that we spied on East Timor in order to get a better, we put bugging devices right into the middle of of uh, the East Timorese highest offices uh, in order to get some advantage when we were trying to negotiate on the seabed deal, which would determine where the oil and gas benefits would fall. Now, the guys have revealed this are looking at also long periods in jail, and there are others. There are no lives at stake in any of these. Yeah. It's just the revelation about bad practices uh, by government agencies. Surely we need not just protections for... Uh, journalists to be well recognised, but also whistleblowers, the, the protections are, are just not there sufficiently. Oh, 100% agree. You know, do you know this as a journalist? And I was a journalist in a former life um, before I went to the dark side. And, uh, you know, good journalism is um, reliant not just on, um, you know, kind of conventional sources, it's also reliant on whistleblowers. Now, that's where a lot of good investigative reporting comes from and um, I, I believe the public has a right to know and I also think it's hugely concerning. How much, it's 161 years or something that, that Boyle's, uh, you know, allegedly going to face. Yeah, and this is for revealing practices in the tax yes. office, which once he had revealed them, changed because everyone could see that they were poor practices, that yeah. they were pursuing small businesses far too hard uh, for alleged tax debts. Uh, and and they changed the process for which his reward is the excruciating stress of going through court cases of losing his job um, but facing now extended periods in jail and the cost involved in just trying to defend himself Did, yeah, for the doing cost. the right thing by Australian citizens. Yeah. It's an astonishing state of affairs. What, what's your sense of this sort of creeping, um, controlling nasty big brother state. Uh, maybe I'm revealing my colours <laughs> just the way I frame the question. But I feel it's a serious concern. I don't like uh, the instincts of some of the people controlling uh, powerful agencies of national security and I don't like where we're heading. 
No, I completely agree. Um, and I think the problem partly is that, you know, it's, let's go back to the election. You know, ultimately what seemed to have prevailed there was the naturally cautious nature of Australians. They're worried quite rightly about their mortgages, about housing affordability for their kids, um, you know, the long commute to work, um, childcare, you know, hospitals. These are quite rightly the things that people live and breathe. Um, But therefore it's very hard to get them exercised about um, the sort of thing we're talking about, about um, the fourth estate and about whistleblowers and so on. Because, and that's probably what governments increasingly rely on. Like, well, people aren't really that interested in that stuff. It's not going to shift votes. No, it's not going to shift votes. And, um, and look, let's not forget that we're living in a time of media disruption where um, media organisations are investing less, they have less money to invest in good quality investigative journalism. So I think, I, I think, I think these are really important issues that you're raising. Uh, the question is how do, you, how do you exercise mainstream Australia about it? Because it's only there that, that we'd, we'd really get some action, I think. Yes, it'd be hard to imagine that a single seat would change hands over these issues, even though they're so fundamental to the society that we live in and that we want to enjoy. Well, you know, I mean, um, a lot of people don't trust journalists and a lot of people also don't trust academics. So, you know, why would they be listening to us in that sense? No, that's true. They don't trust politicians either. No, they don't. Uh, and, And in a sense, what they do trust is their own instincts. And, uh, and I think that I think that's where overreach uh, by government agencies becomes that's a point where people go, no, no, you're taking the mickey now. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. But um, uh, you've made me feel quite pessimistic now about whether... <laughs> Sorry about that, you. <laughs> ..whether any of this matters a damn. Uh, Catherine Lumby, thank you so much for being our professor. Uh, Pleasure. For episode 15 of The Professor and the Hack. Um, great to talk to you. Yeah, you too. And I should say, having given uh, Peter Van Onsen a very hard time for taking a couple of weeks off, uh, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off. So um, uh, the the big question, I think, for us all is if we can replace a professor, uh, can we replace a hack? I I fear the answer is yes and very easily. So um, it'll be up to PVO to find a hack uh, for the next uh, episode 16 of uh, The Professor and the Hack. But uh, I do hope you'll keep listening. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.